0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Fort St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for part two of The Lord's Supper. All right, well, last week, if you were with us, we kicked off a two-part series called The Lord's Supper. The reason why is because the first uh, part in chapter 10, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, and then later on in the message today, he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper once again. And so we saw last week in chapter 10 that when we take the bread, which represents Christ's broken body, and when we take the cup, which represents his shed blood, and we consume those elements, that something special happens What we learned from last week, chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, is that we learned that when we receive the bread, the element that represents Christ, we spiritually become one with Christ. And when we receive the cup, the element that represents his shed blood, we spiritually become one with the blood of Christ. But you take the elements And I take the elements, the elements go inside of you, the elements go inside of me, therefore, we are actually becoming one with one another. And so communion is such a special event. It's not something that we flippantly tack on to the end of the service as a religious ritual. It is something where we have fellowship with Jesus and we have fellowship with one another. And so we take communion so so seriously, but we're going to find out by the end of the chapter today, the Corinthian church did not take it seriously. Now today in chapter 11, as I said, Paul's going to talk about communion at the end of the chapter, but before he does that, he's going to tackle another topic, controversial topic, that all of us need to hear about today, and the topic has to do with God's established order of authority And the S word, submission. (laughs) Let's look at verse 1. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you need to know that there were no chapter divisions in the original manuscript. So I believe that chapter 11, verse 1 actually flows out of the last two verses in chapter 10. Let's look at those verses. Chapter 10, verse 32. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, why Paul, that they may be, what's the word? Saved. Saved. And then he says, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Christ. And so just as, here's the idea, just as Paul put the needs of others before his own needs, just as Paul thought about other people before he thought about himself, which by the way is very Christ-like, just as Paul imitated Christ in that way, he's saying that the church should imitate him in the same way. What do you mean? That means that we need to get into the habit of putting others' needs ahead of our own, That we need to get into the habit, even though it goes against everything in our sin nature, we need to get into the habit of making sure we're not always thinking about ourselves, the three most important people in the world, me, myself, and I, but we're actually thinking about others first. Imitate me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. We need to do this with fellow believers. We need to do it especially with lost people. What's the last word In verse, in chapter 10, the word is that they may be, what, saved. And so there is a lost world, whether you like it or not, there is a lost world that is watching you. You claim you're a Christian, they're watching you. They're really watching you. They're listening to every word you have to say. They're watching how you deal with especially difficult situations. They're seeing how you handle very um, things that have to do with um, um, ethics and morality, Always, always, always watching. It's not just the pastor who lives in a glass house. I believe to a certain extent, all Christians live in a glass house. Therefore, because the lost world is watching, we need to make sure we're imitating Christ, right? And so here's my point here before we move on. Do you know what attracts unbelievers to Christ? Humility. Right? Humility is what turns people on to Jesus. You know who I think of as I was writing this message? Mother Teresa. Now, of course, I don't agree with every doctrine that Mother Teresa um, uh, taught while she was alive, but that woman died almost 20 years ago, and they're still talking about her like she's alive today. And I never hear anybody, unless you're some kind of right-wing fanatic, I never hear anybody saying anything bad about Mother Teresa. Why? Because she gave her life in selfless service to the poor people in Calcutta, India. And she worked with orphans, she worked with lepers, she worked with people with TB, she worked um, with people with HIV AIDS. Didn't matter. She agreed that all human life is equal, and she gave her life to represent the Lord in service to those people, and everybody says, yay, you know why? Because humility attracts people to Christ. But you know what repels people from Christ? Pride. The guy who thinks the world revolves around him. The guy who always has to be right. The guy who thinks of himself before he thinks of others, who puts his own needs instead of putting the needs of others first. And when the world sees that, they say, thanks, but no thanks. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. He says in verse two, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions. In Thessalonians, the word tradition is synonymous with God's word. Keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But, okay, you always affirm people before you lower the boom. He'll lower the boom the rest of the chapter. Here's the principle, verse three. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. God has an established order of authority and submission In the home and in the church, here is that established order straight from God's word. You have God, Christ, man, woman, and then from Ephesians 6.1, of course, we have children. Now, I understand that right now, so many people, either in this room or watching online or listening on their mobile device, so many people are having this thought right now. Wait, time out! What are you doing, Pastor Mike? You're putting the man above the woman, and that is absolutely sexist. Okay, before you stone me to death, you gotta hear the rest of the chapter because there will be some splaining that will happen, okay? So stay with me here. God, not Pastor Mike, said in verse three, and the word head means authority, but I want you to know that the authority of every, of every man is Christ, the authority of the woman is the man, and the authority of Christ is God. Now, it's so clear right there in the Scriptures, but we resist it. But what you got to understand before you start resisting it is that there are blessings that flow down from that God-established order of authority and submission. And if you resist this then you are stepping away from the flow of God's blessings. This is his word we're talking about, right? It's supposed to be authoritative in all matters of life and practice. And so if the man, the husband there, decides, I'm not going to submit myself to the will of Christ, and he steps away, do you know what you're doing, husband? You're taking away blessings for your wife and your kids, I don't believe, because I believe our God's a merciful God. I don't believe you're taking away all the blessings, but I believe that the peace and the harmony and the blessing in the home, to a large extent, is being missed out because you, husband, are not walking with the Lord. Right? Yes or no, right? Come on. And so it's the same thing now with the wife. If she decides, I'm gonna step away from my husband's leadership in my life, headship, from that verse, then, then, then wife, what are you doing? To a large extent, you're stopping up the blessings for your kids. And in a home, and in homes in this church where the husband and the wife are constantly screaming at each other, and they're screaming at each other in front of their kids, what you gotta understand is that the blessings are being stopped up, and it's your choice. How many of you guys believe we all have a free will, right? Absolutely, it's your choice whether you want to get in line and receive the blessings that come from the top down or whether you want to step away and not be blessed. Now, it says in verse 3 that the head of the woman is the man. (laughs) Okay, so in case you have a problem with that, first thing I'll say is um, God wrote it, so please send God your email this week. Okay, the second thing I would say is there's two things that it does not mean. I've got to explain that as your pastor. The first thing, if you're taking notes, the head of woman is the man. It does not mean that women are inferior to men in any way, shape, or form. It does not mean that the woman has less value than the man. It does not mean that the woman has an inferior intellect. Most women I know are smarter than I am. That's the way it is. It does not mean that the woman, it certainly does not mean the women or women are less spiritual than men. Okay, I believe this is a fact. I don't even think this is an opinion. I believe the fact of the matter is that in the church today, women by and large are more spiritual than men. It's always been that way. Who was around the cross in Christ's greatest time of need? A bunch of women. Thank God they were there. John ran away like, the other dudes, but then he came back. So at least there was one guy there representing us men, but by and large, it was the women that were around the cross, and so if you think in some chauvinistic way that that phrase, the head of a woman is the man, in any way says that women are inferior to men, then I have to ask you this question, okay? If you believe women are inferior to men, do you believe Christ is inferior to God? Listen to the Word of God. John 1:1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, help me out, was God. Who's the Word? Jesus. Let's put his name in there. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus, help me out, was God. He said later on in John uh, chapter 10, I and my Father are one, right? And so there has never been a time when the eternal son was inferior to the father in essence or in value. There's never been a time, but in his incarnation, when the eternal son of God wrapped himself in human flesh to come and seek and save us, those who were lost, during that time as a man, he absolutely submitted to the authority of his father, Okay, And so in no way does it mean the head of woman is man, that women are inferior, just like in no way does it mean that Christ is inferior to God. If you're taking notes, there's something else it doesn't mean. It does not mean that every woman has to submit to every man in the church. Okay, now I've heard that from this church. And so as your pastor, I've got to correct whoever that was that was talking about that. When you look at the scriptures, you got to understand that as you you go through um, these scriptures, as far as we know, the scriptures teach the principle of the headship of man in only two places in the home and in the church. Okay, first of all, the home. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Wives. Submit to your own husbands. Everybody say, own husbands. Submit to your own husbands in the Lord, or as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Please notice God's word says to to the wives, submit to your own husbands, not everybody else's husband. Right? And so what we have to understand because, you know, some ladies right now are thinking, but, but, but what you're saying is I have no influence in my home or in my marriage. And I'd have to say, as nice as I can be, ladies, are you kidding me? You have no influence? Wives, well, listen to this. Your husband may be the head, but you're the neck that turns the head. Absolutely. And any husband who doesn't listen to his wife's a fool. Okay. Any, any husband who's got some, some wisdom is absolutely gonna love and adore and serve and be Christ-like to his wife and absolutely listen to his wife. The scriptures teach the principle of the headship of the man in the areas of the home and in the church. Please listen to God's word, Hebrews 13, 17. God's word says to women and men, by the way, in the church. Quote, "Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account." Obey your leaders in the context as pastors and elders. Obey them, submit to their authority for they watch for your souls, okay? So just like a shepherd out in the field is keeping watch over his flock of sheep, so pastors and elders are being charged by God to keep watch over the flock of God, which is the church. And what a huge responsibility we have. And we will give an account. You need to know that as pastors and elders, we will absolutely give an account, eyeball to eyeball, to our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, for the way that we shepherd, for the way that we pastored. And Jesus said to Pastor Pete, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed my sheep. And it was a big, big deal. And so we, I, will will give an account to the Lord as to how I loved you and served you and fed you and tended to you. And all the pastors on staff will give the same account. And so because we have that huge responsibility, God says, obey your pastors and elders, submit to them, they watch for your souls. And any pastor who's not watching for the souls of his church is not a pastor, he's a hireling. And so the phrase, the head of woman is the man, does not mean that every woman has to submit to every man in the church, But she does, like the men in the church, need to submit to the pastors and elders of that church, straight black and white from God's word. But let's regroup. Okay, if you're with me here, say amen here. Okay, listen, 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 listen. Just like the Bible does not teach all women in the church must submit to all men in the church, so it also does not teach that all women in society must submit to all men in society. In the areas of business, education, politics, and a hundred other areas, women have a green light to lead. Now, this is going to get controversial, and I I've thought about not including what I'm going to say right now and the video, the short video to follow. I thought about not including it in my message, and the Lord spoke very clearly to me to make sure I say what I'm going to say and make sure I show the video that I'm going to show And so what you need to know is that Deborah did a great job leading the nation of Israel in Judges chapter four and chapter five, a woman. And the whole nation came to this woman as she listened to their issues and she gave judgment as to how they should handle the issues of their lives. And so, hey, if Deborah did it, I have no problem with a qualified woman leading our nation as president. No problem at all. Now, I could tell because four people said amen that not all of you are bought into this, right? And so I was reminded of this recently while watching um, the Republican debate, especially when Carly Fiorina spoke. And I want you with humble hearts and wide open Dumbo ears to listen to what she has to say in this short video about the very important subjects of Iran And Planned Parenthood, check this out.
1: I would like to link these two issues, both of which are incredibly important, Iran and Planned Parenthood. One has something to do with the defense of the security of this nation. The other has something to do with the defense of the character of this nation. You have not heard a plan about Iran from any politician up here. Here's my plan. On day one in the Oval Office, I will make two phone calls. The first to my good friend Bibi Netanyahu to reassure him we will stand with the State of Israel. The second to the Supreme Leader to tell him that unless and until he opens every military and every nuclear facility to reel anytime, anywhere inspections by our people, not his, we, the United States of America, will make it as difficult as possible to move money around the global financial system. We can do that. We don't need anyone's cooperation to do it. And every ally and every adversary we have in this world will know that the United States of America is back in the leadership business, which is how we must stand with our allies. As regards Planned Parenthood, anyone who has watched this videotape, I dare. Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, to watch these tapes, watch a fully formed fetus on the table, its heart beating, its legs kicking, while someone says we have to keep it alive to harvest its brain. This is about the character of our nation. And if we will not stand up and force President Obama to veto this bill, shame on us.
0: Okay. Now, here's what you need to understand in case you were wondering. This is not a Republican or Democrat um, issue right here. This is a pro-Israel and pro-life issue here. And if the church zips up our mouth and refuses to speak about political issues that are not just political issues, we're talking about supporting God's people, Israel, we're talking about standing up for life, if we are closing our mouth about these issues, then shame on us as a church. Okay, thank God that somebody has enough guts to speak what needs to be said. And listen, if there's, I'm not, I'm not endorsing, publicly endorsing any candidate. I think a lot of those candidates would be great as presidents. Certainly not all of them, by the way, but I think a lot of them on that stage would be a great president. But here's what you need to know if we are finally gonna have a woman in the White House, I'd rather have a woman who stands for life than a woman who stands for the legalization of murder. So we've got to stand up, church family. We've got to hear, let the the world hear our voices on this. There are babies dying. And we're standing around saying, let them die. What are we doing? Why are we quiet on this issue? Why don't we stand up and start mobilizing and start standing and and get behind uh, uh, ministries like Karenette? and begin to support them. Do you know what they're doing? They're helping women say yes to life and they're saving hundreds and hundreds of babies, true lives. And so I for one could care less if our church shrinks because I speak out on these issues because it's not about the size of the church, it's about teaching the truth. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, I obeyed the Lord. I said it. I showed the video, verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying. We got to say something. Because I'm not going to stand before the Lord and say, when he says, why didn't you say something? How many millions died, Mike? Mike? So verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Who's the head of man? Christ. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who's her head? Her husband. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. That's a a winger there, and I'll explain why it was a winger in the first century in a moment. Or a zinger, I should say. Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now, Paul now brings up the cultural issue. Everybody say cultural issue here. Okay. Of head coverings, a shawl or a veil. But you need to know that this is a cultural issue because it was in the first century in that church, it's not canon law for all churches of all times. I'm talking about specifically women wearing veils or shawls to church. I don't see anybody here doing that today. There's a reason it's not in our culture. John MacArthur said this, if you're taking notes and you want some backup, uh, the apostles not laying down an absolute law for women to wear veils or coverings in all cultures for all time. But it's declaring that the symbols of the divinely established male and female roles are to be genuinely honored in every culture. Okay, so in that culture, if a man came to church with his head covered in a head covering a veil or shawl, he dishonored Christ. If a woman came into the church in that culture and she was not wearing a veil or a shawl, she dishonored her husband. Why? Because in that culture, the veil the, the, the shawl was a symbol that that woman understood and was under God's order of authority and submission. In other words, when the woman in the first century came into the church of Corinth with a head covering or a veil, a shawl or a veil, what she was saying in her heart to the Lord is, is Jesus, just as you were submitted to the Father while you were on the earth, and just like my husband, who I love, is submitted to you, Jesus, so I am submitted to my husband. And that was the symbol that showed her submission to the Lord. But there was a problem, one of many in the church of Corinth. Women were coming to church without the head covering, without the veil. And their attitude was, I'm not submitting to that joker sitting next to me in church. And I'm not submitting to the leaders of this church, the pastors and the elders. And you know what Paul has to say to those women in verse 6? He said, if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn It's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved. If it's it's shameful, let her be covered. In other words, Paul was saying, if that's your attitude, ladies, then you should go ahead and shave your head. Now, that's a zinger. We don't know why in this century. What you need to do is go back and read the history, and what you'll find out is that in ancient Greek culture, the only women who shaved their heads were prostitutes. So the Apostle Paul is saying to these women who are coming to church, saying, I don't want this head covering. I'm not submitting to any man. He's saying, then shave your head. In other words, you're just on the level of a prostitute. Thank God for a man of God, the Apostle Paul, who is willing to correct the church and let the chips fall. Now, the head covering was important in that culture. Today in the West, we don't have that same cultural practice, but what we do have in place is the teaching of God's word, and that is that God has a a divine order of authority and submission. We already talked about what that is in the home and in the church. And in this church, we will absolutely do whatever we can to submit to God's order. Look at verse 7. He says, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head. He shouldn't put on a veil or a shawl, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. And so Paul says, the, the guy, he's the image and glory of God. And I know some people will say, well, wait a minute. Weren't the, or wasn't the man and the woman created in the image of God? And I say, Yeah. But in a unique way, the man is is the image and glory of God, listen, when he takes up his responsibility as a godly leader. Guys, listen to this. Every man in this room, you got to sit up and you got to listen to this here. God has called you to lead. And you are to be a godly servant leader. And when you love your wife and when you lead your wife and when you serve your wife, you are displaying the glory and the image of God who loves, serves his people. Okay, and so in that way, the man absolutely is displaying the image and the glory of God and the wife, when she comes along, her partner, her husband, and helps him, she's the glory of the man, And so I thank God in my own personal life for 26 and a half years, I can say that consistently my wife Stacy has been my glory. She's the most amazing wife that any guy could ever have. She's always supported me in in ministry. She's always come alongside of me. She's always encouraging me. She's always um, giving me advice that I absolutely listen to. She's always there. And I thank God for that because I could never be the pastor of that church because because behind every good man is a great woman, okay? And so in that way, the woman is the glory of the man. And so look at verse 8 now. For the man, okay, so why is the man the head of the woman? He's given the reasons, 8. For man is not from woman, but woman from man, right? He's referring to the order of creation, First, God made Adam, and yes, we in this church believe God made a person named Adam. And then, from his side, he made the woman. He made the man first, then the woman. Verse 9, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Okay, and so you guys remember, he makes Adam. He has Adam name all these animals, and, you know, Adam is just, like, getting depressed, I have no fellowship with these animals. <laughs> I have no, they're not talking back to me, you know? And so God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Causes Adam to fall asleep, takes his rib or part of his side, wherever you want to say, and he forms the woman. He brings the woman to the man as a helper suitable for the man. What did not happen? God did not create Eve first, cause Eve to fall asleep, take a rib from Eve's side, form Adam, bring Adam to Eve, and say, you're there to help her. No, the man was not created for the woman. The woman was for the man. Straight black and white from God's word. Now, that doesn't mean that the man needs to be, you know, have some attitude like, woman, you're gonna serve me. No, because that's, you're supposed to love love your wife as Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? He serves the church. So both the husband and the wife are servants, but the, the guy leads. And by the way, if you have a problem with this, then I dare you tomorrow go to work and tell your boss to go take a hike <laughs> and see what happens. God's got his, his order of authority and submission in every area of life. Every area of life. And we, we would do well to submit to it. Verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority. That's that covering or that veil in the first century on her head because of the who verse 10 angel, angel. so interesting to me paul's reminding the corinthians that when they gather for worship the angels are there this is exciting you know why because we're the church too you know that means when you guys were standing up and saying singing the earth will shake you know the angels were here i believe they still are here And they're watching. Now, apparently, the angels were offended by the church of Corinth. Why? Because they were resisting God's order, established order of authority and submission. The angels were like, you know, Michael and Gabriel looking down at the church of Corinth. Hey, look at that woman. She doesn't have a veil on. Where's her head covering? What's going on here? Do you see the the way she looked at her husband? That that grieves our hearts, the angels would say. And look at that guy. He's not submitted to Christ. He's not submitted at all. He's just doing the religious thing. What's going on in this church? Nothing but rebellion against God's order of authority and submission. Now, why would the angels be, have you ever thought about this? Why would the angels be offended by that? Here's why, they experienced what happens when somebody gets out of line and rebels against God's order. His name was Lucifer, and they were there. And they saw the heartache and the turmoil when Lucifer somehow got a third of their friends walking around whispering about lies about God in heaven and got a third of the angels to believe his deception and rebel against the Lord, and they all got kicked out and these holy angels that are submitted to their head, God, knows the, the trauma of when that happens. And they're, they're thinking, as they look down at the, 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 the lack of submission in the church of Corinth, hey, we don't want that to keep happening in the church, what we saw happen in heaven. You guys need to get your act together. And so the angels are watching, and they're absolutely, believe me, submitted to their head, and that's the Lord. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of the woman, nor woman independent of the man in the Lord. For as woman came from the man, here we go, even so man comes through the woman, but all things are from God. The idea here is that even though the man is the head of the woman, that doesn't mean that the man is independent of the woman, How many of you guys understand that we really need the women in our lives? How many of you guys understand who carried you? Who carried you for 40 weeks in her womb? Who nursed you when you were a helpless baby? Who fed you throughout your childhood? Who wiped your tears when your big brother hit you? Who read to you every night before you went to bed? Right, Your mother, a woman. And so every man should get on his knees and thank God for the woman who took care of him in his childhood. And every man should get down on his knees and thank God for the woman who's taking care of him in his adulthood. And guys, if you're thankful for those women, let them know right now how thankful you are. That's weak. Let them know how thankful you are for the women in your life. Now... I know some of you are clapping because you want lunch today. (laughs) But it's so true. Hey, you may be the head, but it doesn't mean you don't need her. Look at verse 13. Got to keep flying here. We're going to make it through the chapter. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Hey, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? So Paul's making a point. As he's making his point, he brings up the length of hair. And so as he brings up this point, you need to understand that in both the ancient Greek and Jewish cultures, men had shorter hair than women. In fact, when you look throughout history, not all cultures, but most cultures, it's the same thing men usually have shorter hair than women. Paul is not saying take out a measuring tape and make sure it's a half inch off your collar and off your ears, guys, because you, you gotta make sure. That would be legalistic. He's not saying women, make sure it's halfway down your back or longer. That would be legalistic. What he's saying here is generally speaking, the guy should have shorter hair than the woman. In other words, when you look at the sexes, you should be able to notice a difference. Look at verse 15. He says, if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Some of the translation says instead of a covering, and so for those cultures that did not have the veil or the shawl, the woman with a longer hair than her husband, that was her covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious upset, you know, writing emails, I don't agree, okay, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God, and now he turns his attention back to the Lord's Supper, he says, now in giving these instructions, verse 17, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And so we spent a whole sermon in chapter 1 on that topic of the factions in the Corinthian church. I won't re-preach that. I'll just tell you, you could use our church app, and you can go back and listen to it if you missed it. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, you've got to understand here, Paul's fuming right now, Okay? when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He says, for in eating, one takes his own supper ahead of the others. One is hungry. And the end of verse 21, another is what? Drunk. What? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And so in the early church, they had these things called agape feasts, basically big potluck dinners. And so the church family would get together. Everybody would bring some food, some drinks, if you could afford it. And you would have this big potluck. And at the end of the potluck, the pastor or the elder would stand up and take the bread and take the cup. And the church would have communion together. So what was supposed to be a time of food, fun, fellowship with the Lord, and a time of reverencing God's table, communion table, you know what it turned out to be in Corinth? It didn't look like the Lord's Supper. It looked like a pagan party, a drinking party. And Paul says, what? What's going on here? Well, here's what was going on. Some of the wealthier members of the church they were bringing enough food for themselves, they weren't sharing it with the poorer members of the church. The poorer members were going home hungry. Other people apparently were going to the front of the line, they're piling up their plate so high that the, stuff's fall, the food's falling off, so by the time the guy at the end gets you know, to the, to, to the table, there's like a couple of peas sitting there. There's peas all over the ground because that guy's got a whole plate full, overflowing. And not only that, but they were chugging wine like it was water. So by the time it was time to have communion, half the church was drunk. Paul says, what is going on? Again, I believe Paul would be the type of person, I don't care about numbers. I don't care about how big the church is. I'm gonna correct you on this. Your Lord's Supper feast has now looks like a pagan party that we talked about last week, and it's got to stop. And so now what does he do? He reminds them of how we're supposed to approach the communion table with reverence. He says in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. After supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're proclaiming, church, the Lord's death until he comes He says to the Corinthians, don't you understand? As I said earlier, when you take the bread, that's a symbol of Christ. And that bread's going inside of you. You're having spiritual fellowship with Christ. When you take the cup, that represents his blood of the new covenant. A new agreement from God. I will remember your sins no more. You're taking that inside of you, you're having spiritual fellowship with Christ and with one another. What are you doing with gluttony, selfishness, and drunkenness in the church? And so, because the Corinthians were not being reverent to the communion table and to the Lord, judgment came to the Corinthians. Look at verse 27. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood and the body of the Lord. So what do we have to do? Verse 28, let a man examine himself. It's called repentance, humility before God, brokenness, confession of sin before you approach communion. So let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. He's not discerning the Lord's body. Okay, now put your seatbelts on here. What was the judgment? Look at verse 30. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many what's the word? Sleep. You know what that means? They died. Because they turned the Lord's supper into a pagan party, a drinking party, a bunch of believers in the church got sick some of them even died and it all could have been avoided verse 31 he says if we would judge ourselves we wouldn't be judged but when we are judged we are and I want you to underline the word chastened chastened by the Lord that we may not be underlined condemned with the world there's a difference between those two words And that's how I'm going to finish the sermon here. But verse 33 says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Okay, wait. Be respectful. If anyone's hungry, verse 34, let them eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. And so Paul says there's a difference between chastisement and condemnation. Here's your last point. And that is that God chastises believers... But he condemns unbelievers. Now, again, if you're new to the Bible, you've got to, got to get this, okay? Chastisement is when a loving God corrects his kids, condemnation is when a wrathful God judges the world. How many of you guys understand there's judgment that's coming to this world? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, undeniably, there's judgment that's coming to this world, okay? And so I would rather be chastised as a child of God than condemned with the world. My question is, what camp are you in? What group are you in? And I'd rather be chastised as a kid, even if that chastisement is severe, and die and go to heaven You say, do you believe the Corinthians died and went to heaven? Yep. They were a church. They were Christians. You know why I believe the Corinthians died and went to heaven? Listen to this. Because there's no sin in which Jesus did not die for. Jesus died for gluttony. Jesus died for drunkenness. Jesus died for selfishness. Jesus was condemned. He took your sin, my sin, into his body on the tree so that we could be children who are free, and that's good news. What camp are you in? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.